Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this evening. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself a little bit more. As Pastor Matt was saying, I am an assistant professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute in Spokane, Washington. But before that, I'd like to introduce you to my family. So can I have a picture of my family that's going to pop up here any second? It will pop up, I promise. I'm a prophet. Here we go. That picture will come up soon. Um, but my wife's name is Gabby. Gabby is a Mexico native. Uh, she's actually on her way to Mexico as we speak with our two children, so you're welcome to pray for that. Um, more for sanity than for safety. And, and, uh, and then also we have two children, Yair and Yael. They're both judges, though both of those names are from the book of Judges. Yair, there we go. Now everybody doesn't have to look at me. So Yair is six, he's, uh, he's standing in both of those pictures, and Yael is a year and a half. She's in our arms in both of those pictures. Um, Yair was born in New Jersey when I was in seminary, and then when he was eight months old, when he was a toddler, we moved to Israel, and he lived there for five years when we lived in Israel, and he moved back at the age of five. And so I'm Puerto Rican, my wife is from Mexico, he was born in New Jersey, he lived in Israel his whole life, so his passport says confused across the top. That's confused, completely confused. My daughter Yael is a year and a half old. She was born in East Jerusalem in April of 2016. Here's a little bit more about myself professionally. As Pastor Matt was saying, I'm an assistant professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute in Spokane, Washington. If you believe it or not, a few students actually made the trip to come and, uh, and join us this evening from Moody, so uh, representing um, I did my doctoral studies at Bar-Ilan University, which is in the Tel Aviv area in Israel. And if you just let your eyes sink down to the bottom, you can see I have my social networking information there. Dom S. Hernandez is how you can find me everywhere. I'd love to be able to meet all of you this evening, but it just might not be humanly possible. So you can contact me through social media, and I'd be happy to stay in touch or any, ask, answer any questions that you might have about tonight's teaching or any other teachings. If you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10, we will read John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered and told them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given me, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. 
We give you thanks, God, for the great privilege that it is to be your sons and your daughters, to be called into a relationship with you and have the privilege of walking with you, Lord. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through words. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of accessing these words, your holy word, through the Bible. And we pray now, Lord, as, as, we, as we dig into this text, that you would teach us individually, Lord, because you know where we're all at individually and as a community here. Lord, teach us how to follow you through your words, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, most people, most people love the holidays, right? And of course, unless, of course, you are the Scrooge, most people love holidays. Most people love spending time with family and friends. Whatever the occasion might be, holidays are generally accompanied by festive celebration, as we just saw through Thanksgiving when Americans celebrated how grateful we are for the things that the Lord has given us through a big meal. And we're going to shortly celebrate, in similar fashion, the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, during our Christmas holiday. But during this time of year, we also start to see these menorah-looking things in retail stores and in our neighborhoods. And we know as Christians that these menorah, this menorah-looking thing, this nine-branch menorah-looking thing, is probably a Jewish symbol because it's similar to the seven-branch menorah that we see show up in the Bible, that is, in, the ancient, in ancient Israelite temples. But this is actually more properly called the Hanukkiah, and that is... It is the menorah or the lampstand that's used to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah with a guttural, Hanukkah. Everybody say Hanukkah. All right, you're good at it. You know Hebrew now. Now, as Christians, we generally tend to know very little about Hanukkah, this menorah holiday, except for the fact that it normally falls around Christmas. And because of this, many Christians consider Hanukkah to be like the Jewish Christmas, right? You know, Christians get gifts for Christmas and Jews get gifts for Hanukkah, right? But what are these Jewish, what are our Jewish friends celebrating during this time of year? What do they celebrate by the lighting of the candles? Now, as a result of the lighting of the candles, we somehow know that Hanukkah is associated with lights and it's frequently called the festival of lights or something like that. But we still think Hanukkah, it's the Jewish Christmas, right? Unlike the joyous Christmas holiday, the story of Hanukkah is actually not a pretty one. The specific event or events commemorated by the Jewish people during this Hanukkah season consists of a story of religious oppression, the desecration of the Jewish temple, guerrilla warfare, and ultimately much, much bloodshed. Now, you would never know that under most circumstances, right? And the reason why you would never know that is because of how Hanukkah is celebrated in our day and age, by eating these fried donuts that you can see up here. These fried donuts are called sufganiyot. They're an excuse to eat jelly donuts. If you see them in the marketplace, buy them. They're good, and it's still the Hanukkah season, so you can, you know, it's an excuse. They're called sufganiyot. Most of our Jewish friends that celebrate Hanukkah will eat these fried pancakes called lakkes in in the U.S. or levivot in Israel, which come on the next slide. And many Jewish friends sit around and spin the dreidel, which is on the next slide, actually. So we have latkes, next slide, here's the dreidel. And those consonants on the dreidel stand for, uh, it's nun gimel hei shin, which is an acronym for nes gadol hayasham. There was a great miracle there. What miracle are our Jewish friends talking about? What are they talking about? 
Now, if you were at any of your Jewish friends' houses between December 12th of this year and the evening of December 19th, so that is last night, you would have seen them light candles on this Hanukkiah, and they would have probably said the following blessings that show up on this slide. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu lehadlik ner shel Hanukkah. But they actually wouldn't have said it like that. They would have sung it like this. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu lehadlik ner shel Hanukkah. And then everybody around says, Amen. All right. All right. Okay, can I join the worship team? Where's the worship leader? Can I get on the worship? After that blessing, many of our Jewish friends would have said the next blessing. What in the world are our friends talking about by saying this first blessing? Blessed are you, Lord God, or Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to light the Hanukkah candle. Where? Why would they say that? And the second blessing, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who did great miracles on behalf of our forefathers during those days, during this time period. What miracles? Most families, after lighting these Hanukkah candles, uh, will sing a few songs commemorating the events surrounding Hanukkah that you'll see on the next slide with the Hebrew and then um, the English translation. Hanerot halalu she'anu madlikin, Hanerot halalu she'anu madlikin, Ala nisim ve'ala niflaot ve'ala milchamot ve'ala teshuot. Here we see again the candles that we are lighting. We light them because of the miracles and wonders, because of wars and salvation. Again, as Christians during this time season, we think, what in the world are they talking about? What's being stated here. And then the next part of this song says um, that you did on behalf of our forefathers during those days, during this time. Well, these blessings, those blessings that I so eloquently sung, as well as the song, that was a joke, can I get a giggle? As well as the song that I just sung, both allude to the story behind Hanukkah. Now, we don't know all of the details behind the story of Hanukkah, and we don't know whether all of the story, all that's commemorated now, is completely true. And the reason why we're not completely sure of all the details of the modern story behind Hanukkah is because Hanukkah is only alluded to once in the entire Bible. Once. And it's not in the Old Testament where you would expect a Jewish feast or festival to be alluded to. It's alluded to once in the New Testament, by Jesus himself. Actually, I would contend in a very profound way. Look again at John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Stop, just for a sec. That's Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. How do we know that? We know that for two reasons. First of all, we know that Hanukkah, with the guttural, Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. So the feast of dedication that John is referring to here is Hanukkah. That's the first thing. 
Additionally, we know that Hanukkah starts on the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev. And Kislev always takes place in our winter, most of the time overlapping with December. That's why we think that Hanukkah is the Jewish Christmas, because it normally overlaps with the Christmas season. This year, it started on December 12th, and it actually ended at sundown today. The last lighting of a candle, the candles was last night. Now, in order to understand a bit of the his, his, it's important to grasp a little bit of the historical background of this passage in John chapter 10, in order to grasp why Jesus was in the temple during this feast of dedication or Hanukkah. And understanding the historical background here will also lend insight into the words, the very words that Jesus said in this passage, particularly his claim to be one with the Father in chapter 10, verse 21. Now, as I've said, Hanukkah means dedication. But dedication of what? The dedication of what? Well, in short, the dedication of the temple, and in particular, the altar of the temple, where sacrifices that were outlined in the Old Testament were carried out. You see, there was a period of time, friends, now I know you're not going to believe what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to say it anyway. There was a period of time where the world language was not English. It really, the period, there was a period of time in which the world, English, world language was another language. A few hundred years before Jesus was born, Greek was the international language because Alexander the Great conquered much of the Middle East that you can see on this slide that's about to come up. The Greek language and culture became prominent not only in Israel, but it became the international commerce language, and cultural exchange also was done in Greek. This process was called Hellenization. That is, the adaptation of the Greek language and culture. And sometimes Hellenization was forced. That is, sometimes the adaptation of the Greek language and culture was forced on certain people groups that didn't want it. Jewish people sometimes, or some Jewish people were Hellenized, and some Jewish people were not. Now, we see this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6, where there's a dispute between Hebrew-speaking Jewish women and Greek-speaking Jewish women over the daily ration of the, of, for the widows. Now, after Alexander the Great died, his successors fought over that huge kingdom. And about 150 to 160 years after his death, a Greek group called the Seleucids controlled what we now know to be the country of Israel, the area that's now known as the country of Israel. And during this time, a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, God manifest. During this time, Antiochus began prohibiting aspects of the Jewish religion. That is, those things that were commanded by God in the Torah. And we don't know exactly why Antiochus did this. But Antiochus began to forbid eating kosher, that is, those rules that God gave the people of Israel in the Torah, that is, what God told the people to eat and not to eat, what they were permitted to eat and not permitted to eat, Antiochus began forbidding those, keeping those laws. He forbade circumcision. Now, circumcision, we read in Genesis chapter 17, is the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. That is the sign that the Jewish people continued to have a physical sign of God's promise to the people of Abraham. Antiochus began forbidding that. And he began forbidding, 
he, he began forbidding, prohibiting Israel from keeping the Sabbath. Now, we know that, if, that the Jewish people, if they didn't keep the Sabbath in accordance with the Torah, the punishment could have been the death penalty. But Antiochus, for some reason, started to forbid keeping the, the Jewish religion during this time. Now, we don't have a biblical account of all of the, the things that Antiochus did. But we do have a historical account of some of the things that Antiochus did in the book of 1 Maccabees. Now, 1 Maccabees is not a canonical book. It's not a book that we consider to be inspired by God the Holy Spirit, but this is where our Jewish friends get the political history behind the stories of Hanukkah. And despite the fact that Jewish people, nor do Protestants, accept this book to be part of our biblical canon. We read in the book of 1 Maccabees concerning the political situation behind the Hanukkah story that then the king, that is Antiochus IV, wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. Now, just stop right here, pause right here. What that means is that all people in Antiochus' kingdom were forced to be Hellenized. They were forced to be one people, the people that Antiochus wanted them to be. Now, interestingly enough, we see that the people of Israel were never forced to assimilate in the sense that God had actually called them out to be different so that they could be a light to the nations. And so just this, this whole idea that the, that the people of Israel were, were called to assimilate is, is bad news. Very first line, okay? Bad news. We read after the ellipsis here. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols to sacrifice swine. That's not good. To sacrifice swine and other unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised. And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. So this is what the Jewish people are faced with. Stop circumcising your children. Stop eating kosher. Stop keeping the Sabbath. Sacrifice swine or die. We read... But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. We read that in many, many in Israel stood firm. One of these many was a man named Matityahu or Mattathias, the Hasmonean. He was a priest from a town called Modi'in, which is about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. And he would not take part in this forced Hellenization. And he and his sons, his five sons, even are reported to have killed another Jew who they saw was offering up a forbidden sacrifice. And he and his five sons called Israel to take arms against the pagans and their blasphemy and to revolt against the Greek empire. Now, Matityahu shortly died after this revolt started, but the revolt continued and it was led by his son, Judah the Maccabee, Yehuda HaMaccabee. Maccabee is the coolest nickname ever. And using guerrilla tactics, guerrilla warfare tactics, 
Judah and this insurgent Jewish army eventually was able to throw off the yoke of the oppressor. And they eventually made it back to the temple in Jerusalem in about 164 before Christ. And when they arrived in the temple at the temple precincts in Jerusalem, they realized that the the temple precincts were in, in terrible condition and they mourned. And that's when Judah the Maccabee apparently takes it upon himself. He decides that he will take the initiative to cleanse and to rededicate the temple. And we read about that also in 1 Maccabees 4. Again, the historical account behind the book of Hanukkah here. Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up and cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. They saw also the chambers of the priest in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. Then Judas chose blameless priests, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones. They deliberated what to do about the, what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned, and they thought it best to tear it down, so they tore down the altar. Then they took unhewn stones, as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they lit the lamps on the lampstand and gave light in the temple. So Judas took the initiative to determine then that the rededication of the temple should be observed annually. And that's the historical story behind Hanukkah, that, rededic- that observance of the rededication of the Jewish temple annually. Well, it's important to note about this last side, slide, this last quotation. What is important to notice here is this reference to the lampstand in the temple. Now, that temple menorah was a seven-branch menorah. We're familiar with the menorah, but it's different than this Hanukkiah in our day and age. We're familiar with this menorah because this was the menorah that was in the temple that God had designed to put in the temple that was supposed to be a big, beautiful lampstand made of gold that was never intended to be put out. That is, the fire of this menorah was always supposed to burn. It was never supposed to be extinguished, as we can see in this verse from Exodus chapter 27, verses 21 and 22. According to Jewish tradition, when the priests arrived at the temple precincts, they saw that not only was the seven-branch menorah extinguished, but there was only one, one cruise of undefiled oil that was enough to burn that menorah for one day. Okay, so you just fill up the menorah with more oil, right? Not a big deal. Well, no, there actually is a a problem here. There's quite an issue. The problem is that it apparently took eight days to produce enough oil for one day. And so they started the production of the oil to keep that temple menorah burning. Now, now, can you guess what happened according to Jewish tradition? This is the miracle of Hanukkah now. This is the miracle. That cruise of undefiled oil that only should have lasted one day, lasted the eight days that it took to, soup, to, to pr- produce more oil to burn the menorah. And that's why here we have eight places to put candles. 
This ninth place to put can- this ninth place right here, this is called the Shamash. And actually, this one doesn't count. It doesn't represent one of the eight days that the oil supernaturally burned. This candle does the work for the others. It's used to light the other candles. That's why the Hanukkiah looks different. That's why it's a nine-branch menorah as opposed to a seven-branch one, seven one. Here is the quotation that we get from the Talmud concerning this miracle of the oil. When the Greeks entered the temple, they polluted all the oils in the temple. And when the Hasmonean dynasty, that is Judah the Maccabee and his, and his, and his army, when the Hasmonean dynasty overcame and defeated them, they checked and they found but one cruise of oil that was set in place with the seal of the high priest. That means it hadn't been opened. It hadn't been defiled. But there was in it only enough to light a single day. A miracle was done with it, and they lit from it for eight days. And that's where the tradition comes of lighting candles. Lighting candles is done as part of the remembrance of the supernatural provision of eight days of light from one flask of oil, according to the Talmud. You can see the citation here. Now, the, that's the problem with this part of the story. You see, the Talmud was written at least 300 years after the time of Christ. That is, this is a much later tradition. It was compiled probably three to 400 years minimum after the time of Christ, and that would make it at least 550 years after the events recorded in 1 Maccabees. So it's a later tradition. But we still find Jesus in the temple celebrating, apparently celebrating, the Feast of Dedication. Now, we don't, the, the, we, we don't, the text doesn't explicitly say what Jesus is doing in the temple with regard to the Feast of Dedication. But John makes it important to note that Jesus was there in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. You have to ask why. Was Jesus commemorating the historical events behind this Feast of Dedication? Now, for me, if Jesus was commemorating the events, if, if Jesus was commemorating the events behind the Feast of Dedication, for me, that's not a big deal. That's not even surprising. That's not surprising at all. And here's why. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus did Jewish things. Jesus was Jewish. That's not surprising. It's not surprising to us that Jesus, as a Jewish person, would be in the temple commemorating the rededication of the temple. What's surprising in this passage, what's surprising is what Jesus says while he's in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. Now let's take a look at John chapter 10 again. I know it's not customary to read the same passage twice in its entirety during a study. But this passage deserves a glance before the historical information, and it deserves a glance now after we know some of the historical information around the Hanukkah holiday. John, Chen, John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All right. Now let's briefly discuss, I mean, there's so much here, but let's briefly discuss two important aspects concerning what Jesus says here in order to get a complete idea of exactly what Jesus is saying. Initially, through this passage, Jesus interestingly uses imagery of a shepherd and a sheep. To be explicit, Jesus is the shepherd and the sheep are the followers. Now, Jesus isn't really a shepherd, right? This is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. Jesus isn't really a a, a shepherd, but he uses this metaphor. Jesus is the shepherd, and the sheep are the followers. Now, throughout this scripture, scriptures, we see this sheep-shepherd metaphor, this imagery, is used to depict God's relationship with Israel. For example, if you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. We're just going to read the first few verses of Jeremiah chapter 23 in which we see that Jeremiah contrasts God as the good shepherd with the unfaithful shepherds. Here's what Jeremiah has to say, and this is just one example. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. That is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the name of the God of Israel. Therefore says the Lord, capital L, capital O, okay, you get it, right? Therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Let's move ahead a little bit. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply." All right, friends, let's, now we have a quiz on this passage, okay? Who do the sheep represent in this passage? Israel. That's easy to recognize. That's easy to recognize. The sheep here are Israel, right? Jesus, even elsewhere, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, he calls Israel sheep when he says, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the sheep part of the metaphor we get. We get it intuitively as Christians. We, you know, Isaiah says all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, we kind of get this. This sheep, we get it. All right. No big deal. There is no controversy in this sheep part of the metaphor, right? The problem in Jesus' context here is the shepherd part of the metaphor. If you just look at the same chapter, verses 11 and 14, this very same chapter, Jesus claims that he is the shepherd, right? What does he say? I am the good shepherd. He says that twice in the same chapter. Now, many times we skip over that. Jesus is the good shepherd. Of course he's the good shepherd. He leads us, right? He's the good shepherd. Hold on a sec. But we just saw that Jeremiah uses the same imagery of the sheep and the shepherd in the scriptures and uses this whole sheep imagery to refer to God himself. Oh, now we have an issue. Because Jesus is metaphorically referring to himself as God himself here. And to magnify the issue, in verse 23, we see that Jesus was in the temple with the religious Jewish people, and he was using this sheep-shepherd imagery to refer to himself as God himself. All right. Do you see what's starting to develop here? Jesus called himself God himself through this shepherd imagery. Now, How would you feel if I stood here 
and called myself God. Now, some of you are starting to giggle a little bit. I mean, you think I'm crazy, but hold on a sec. Let's play this out. I'm God. Now some of you are getting annoyed at me. All right, we get it. No, 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 no. I'm God. Now some of you think that I'm, 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 I'm borderline blaspheming. All right? Take those feelings that you have and just multiply them. A multiple of 10. 10. Multiply them by 10. 50. Multiply them by 50. No, no, no. Multiply them by 100. No, let's be a six-year-old. Multiply those feelings by infinity. That's what the religious leaders must be feeling during this time. Okay? Why? Imagine the effect that this, that Jesus' claim has on his audience in light of the fact that he was standing in the same temple that had previously been desecrated by the Greeks just about 190 years before them. And not only that, Jesus was claiming divinity in the temple during the festival that marked the expulsion of blasphemy from the temple. All right. Let's just say that many people don't, let's just say some people there didn't get the shepherd imagery, right? Let's just say it was a little bit vague. You know, maybe some people didn't get it. Maybe some of you are kind of like, ah, that might be a stretch. Okay, maybe. But Jesus leaves no room for speculation in his statements in verse 30. Look down at verse 30, where Jesus overtly claims, I and my Father are one. Now, as I shared with you all earlier, I did my PhD at a place called Bar Ilan University. Uh, it's in the Tel Aviv area in Israel. I really enjoyed my time there. I studied there for five years. And in order to be a uh, professor at Bar Ilan in the Bible department, you have to be a practicing Orthodox Jewish person. So I studied with all Orthodox Jewish people, uh, and I did my, my PhD with them. And, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. I, I, I loved my time in Israel. There was one thing I learned, however, by studying with Orthodox Jewish people, and that is Judaism is not really a creed-based religion. That is, you know, Christians say, well, you really have to believe certain things in order to be a Christian. And Judaism, it, it, it's not so much like that. There aren't creeds like we have in, in, uh, in, in Christianity where we say, you really must believe these things if you're going to call yourself a Christian. However, there is at least, there's one thing. I'm just going to point out one thing. There's one thing that most religious Jewish people would say that you cannot deny or disagree with if you want to call yourself a religious Jew. You can't be a polytheist. You can't be a polytheist. And where does that come from? That comes from a, a, a pronouncement called the Shema, the Shema prayer. I mean, many of you might have heard of the Shema prayer, right? It's not a prayer. It's more of a, of, of a, of a proclamation. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which you're going to see up here, where we read, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Now, Jewish people, religious Jewish people say this several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is, the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord is one. There's no room for polytheism in Judaism. No one can make themselves God in Judaism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, one God. If you just skip through the, skim through the pages of the Old Testament, you could see... The people of Israel actually were those that brought monotheism into a polytheistic world. One God, right? They were the ones that were intended to properly represent that one true God to the world around them. One God. Monotheism was and continues to be a tenant of Judaism, of religious Judaism. No one can be a human being and make themselves God in Judaism. 
Monotheism was essential prior to Jesus' time and was essential during the time in which Jesus uttered this, of these words, and monotheism is essential up to the present day. But Jesus dares to make himself equal with God. And here's how he does it. He says, I and the Father are one. Echad. Now, it seems that Jesus, friends, let me, let me tell you something. Despite the fact that I said that the lingua franca, the, the language of the world prior to the time of Jesus was Greek, and the New Testament bear, bears witness of that, and that they were written in, or the, the, the books were written in Greek, Jewish people probably did not speak Greek to each other in Israel. They probably spoke Hebrew to each other. And when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he seems to be alluding to the Shema proclamation, which says, the Lord is one, echad. Jesus says, ani ve'ha'av, or ha'av ve'ani echad. We are one. All right. Now, again, try to understand the severity of the claim to the ears of the, of the people who are in the temple celebrating the rededication of the temple. Try to understand how severe this sounds to them. When only about 190 years earlier, in that very same temple, that temple was desecrated during this time of Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, God incarnate, God manifest. And now Jesus in that very same temple is claiming to be God manifest. Jesus' words are blasphemous to his hearers, and his timing couldn't have been orchestrated more precisely than the ultra-significant celebration of Hanukkah, where the Jewish people were celebrating the rededication of their temple in their temple. Through Jesus using this similar language of, of sheep, the sheep shepherd imagery, and the similar language to the Shema, the similar rhetoric to the Shema, Jesus is perceived as blaspheming the temple. Now, Jesus' identification with the Father and thereby his claim to divinity is so clear that we read in verse 31. If you just look at your Bibles in verse 31, that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why would they want to put him to death? Why would they want to put him to death? They had no problem understanding what he was claiming. Why? Well, look at this verse in, in Leviticus. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. You see, Jesus was perceived as demonstrating the ultimate form of irreverence for God by making himself out to be God. And the zeal that the people in the temple showed as they picked up stones to stone him, ready to kill him, was the same zeal demonstrated by the Maccabees as they inspired their fellow Jewish people to arise out of their spiritual slumber, throw off the yoke of the Greek oppressor, and reclaim the desecrated temple. But with Jesus, it was misguided because he was God in human flesh. And as we take this extra biblical information into account, as into consideration, it's extremely clear that Jesus on this occasion is claiming to be God in the flesh. And in light of that, in light of what Jesus says about himself, in light of his claim as recorded by the Gospel of John, I would suggest that Christians as well as non-Christians have a natural tendency to be a little bit dishonest about Jesus. And let me tell you what I mean by this, okay? 
After a statement like the, one that Je- the, the ones that me- Jesus made in the temple, over the Feast of Dedication, and the reaction of the people in the temple in that context, it is absolutely perplexing to he- hear people say that Jesus was just a good teacher, that he was a tolerant person. Jesus was a prophet. In light of what Jesus says in its historical context, these answers are absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable in and of themselves. Through this sheep shepherd imagery, as well as claiming to be one with the Father, Jesus personally claimed to be the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. Jesus personally claimed to be God wrapped in human flesh. And it's impossible, it's literally impossible, and it's literarily impossible to view the words in this passage any other way without inappropriately handling the text. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the people knew he was claiming to be God, and so they picked up stones to stone him. We see this in other places in the Gospel of John. For example, John chapter 5, verse 18 This this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God to be his own father, making himself equal with God. The people that were standing in the temple listening to Jesus over the Feast of Dedication understood exactly what he was claiming. They perfectly understood, which is why the conversations in John 5 here and the conversation in John 10 include an occasion in which the people listening wanted to stone Jesus. Now, friends, remember what started this whole argument. If you just look at at, at verse 24 again, in John chapter 10, verse 24, the Jews asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That is, Jesus, who do you make yourself to be, right? If you're the Messiah, tell us. And what did Jesus do? He answered their question, right? He said, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God himself, wrapped in human flesh. And in this way, he answered their question. He answered it definitively, precisely, unambiguously. He answered it with no wiggle room. And in the 21st century, Jesus' claim to be God in the flesh are just as true. They're just as compelling as they were in the first century, particularly understood in the light of John 10, in in light of the story of Hanukkah. And as followers of Christ, we are compelled to stand on the deity of Christ, and we have to refuse to yield at this point. And you know, friends, as we present Christ in our world, listen, people have the right to resist Jesus. They have the right to say, ah, I want to hear that, I don't want to hear that, I don't want to hear that. And it's their business. They can do that. They have the right to do that, right? People have the right to reject Jesus. They have the right to listen, listen, listen. I don't want that. That's nonsense. I don't want to listen to that. They have the right to do that. That's their business. It's sad, right? But it's their business. And people have the right to renounce Jesus. They have the right to say, yeah, Jesus is cool. He's my buddy. I don't like him anymore. They can do that. But one thing that we can take away from Jesus' definitive words in this context is that no one has the right to redefine Jesus. No one has the right to redefine Jesus. And it's human tendency to want to redefine Jesus, you know, to kind of bring Jesus down to a level in which he coexists with us. Now, Christians and non-Christians do this. We have a tendency to bring him down to a level in which we don't have to make any changes in our lives to get along with Jesus. And this way, we don't have to deal with the lordship of Jesus over our lives in order to get along with Jesus. And in this way, Jesus turns into a great humanitarian. Jesus is a great philosopher. Jesus is a great moralizer, a teacher, a nice religious figure. Look, of course Jesus was all these things. 
Of course he was a humanitarian. Of course he was a moralizer. He was the best teacher, but he was more. He was God wrapped in human flesh. And he makes that clear in this context by claiming, I and the Father are one over the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus cannot be defined or redefined on any other terms than the terms that he gave. He is Lord over everything, and no human can redefine him so that we don't have to deal with his claims. Now, in some places of our world, in our world, standing firm on this identity of Christ may very well cost people their lives. In northern Iraq, standing firm on the identity of Christ may cost a believer their life. In eastern Syria, it may cost a believer their life. In Denver, Colorado, it may not cost you your life. But here in this area, of, in this part of the world, this part of the country, standing firm on the identity of Christ may very well cost you your job. It may very well cost you your popularity. It may very well cost you your inheritance. It may very well cost you your friends, your neighbors, your career, right? But you know, whatever that cost might be, as a follower of Christ, it is our privilege and responsibility to pay that price. This rededication of the temple, this rededication of the altar of the temple in particular, is another demonstration of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. This rededication of the altar ended up providing a continuation of the symbolism that had always been intended to point to the mediator of the new covenant. It had always been intended to point to the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. There is there is no, there's a greater significance to this whole rededication of the altar than pointing to the strength of the Maccabees or any particular people that, re, that resisted a religious oppression. The work of the Savior of the universe was represented on the altar in that temple. And God wanted this to continue for the sake of all humankind to see. And the dedication of the temple, the rededication, and maybe the miracle of the oil, if that's true, we don't know if it's true, but if it all, that all came to pass because of God's goodness and dedication to the symbolism represented in the temple and the altar. Indeed, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. No other case is more obvious than standing in that rededicated temple using rhetoric similar to what we might be able to call the only Jewish creed, calling himself, with, uh, calling himself one with the Father and other religious leaders being there to listen to Jesus. Jesus condescended. He descended. He sacrificed himself and he resurrected physically from the dead, and he ascended all that's biblical truth. Amen, amen. And by this, he made true, he made good on his claim. He indeed was God in the flesh. And the temple was the primary mechanism that pointed to Jesus as God, and God in his grace preserved the symbolism therein. In this, we see God's faithfulness. We see God's faithfulness. And we as believers in Jesus, we are, we are called to stand on the truth that Jesus proclaimed in that very temple, never compromising regardless of the cost. Let's pray on this. Let's pray even right now. Let's pray after the service. Right, the, the prayer team is going to be here. Let's pray that God would empower us to be as bold as Jesus was in declaring exactly who Jesus is, knowing that there are consequences. Knowing that, let's make that our prayer. Now, I have a warning for you. If we pray this prayer, 
there is a good chance that God actually answers it. And if God answers it, consequences will come. May he give us his strength to be his witnesses and endure the potential consequences, especially during this holiday season, when we, like those around us, will have the temptation to redefine Jesus. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your witness to us so clearly concerning who you are. And we pray, Lord, now, even right now, that you would work in us, showing us how we could be your witness, your examples on this earth during this time season. Lord, when we get so wrapped up with presents and candles and lights and all of these things, whatever our traditions might be, help us, Lord, not to redefine you to get along with us, Lord, but to be bold, Lord, so that we might be changed by you and so that others might be changed by you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.